Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Coach's Corner University podcast. I'm your host, Paul Oneid. And again, I have no idea what episode this is because I don't keep track, but we're here again. And today I am very happy to be joined by a good friend of mine, Jeb Stewart-Johnston. Jeb is a nutrition coach and owner of Food on the Mind, which is very aptly named for the topic that we're going to discuss today is nutrition. So Jeb, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's good to see you again. Yeah, it's great to see you. It's been a while, and uh, you've been up up to a lot of stuff. You're coming coming off an injury. How's that? Go- <laughs> How's that going? Uh, it's actually going surprisingly well, um, man. Like, because I had a, I, I I broke my fibula, so like I've I mean I've I've gotten a boxer's fracture before. I've never had like a real. You know, I've had like back injuries when I was doing strongman, and like you know, like the niggling shoulder stuff and like knees yeah. hurting, but never like a full on like okay, you can't wait bear for like, uh, well, they were like, you know, it's going to take seven weeks to heal. I told him in the appointment, I'm going to do it in five, which I did. My wife was laughing. She's like, <laughs> she's like you're, you're telling them when you're going to heal. I was like, watch five weeks after my, uh, my surgery, I went in and they were like, cool, we're losing the cast. You can put weight on it. You're good. Um, but yeah, it was the first time I've ever had like a full on, like you're out of everything. I mean, I trained upper body and I did mm-hmm. some cross education work with my right leg, which, I think it staved off atrophy a little bit, but not not all of it. Like it definitely, my leg shrunk by about half. It's it's pretty. I look like Deadpool in Deadpool two when he like gets oh, yeah, his legs yeah. blown off and the little baby legs grow back. <laughs> um, so like I got one weird leg and it's my tattooed leg. So that's maybe a better thing. Um, but yeah, so it was really it's really weird. But now I'm I'm back. I I, I did back in training jujitsu and rolled a couple rounds yesterday and today, which has been really big for me um doing like body weight heels elevated squats like that are set of 10 feels like it's crippling me it's it's weird um but i think it was i mean i you know i'm I'm always looking for like the positives out of things and uh there's kind of a benefit to it of like being like oh okay like this is a real limitation like like what you know i think what we think of as limitations and you've you've had serious injuries so you know it's like oh this is a real thing and i think you value when you come like you value how much being in shape, A, it helps you through the injury process, but also like how much you value exercise and movement and these things you kind of take for granted. For sure. It makes you more grateful of the little things that you may otherwise, again, take for granted. But for me, I I always try to look at injury as an opportunity to be creative and apply my craft because, you know, a lot of the coaching that I do, like I do coach nutrition, but I do coach a lot of training and that was you know, how I came up was rehabbing injury, coaching athletes when they were off the field. And for me, it was just an opportunity to say, okay, what can I do? How can I progress independent of this injury? Um, And how can I have fun? Right. Because being injured, the first thing that comes into mind is like, man, this sucks. But if I can turn this around and be like, all right, well, what can I do? That's fun. What can I do that provides me some sort of enjoyment? And then the other thing that came about from that was because I had the repetitive injuries, I was constantly faced with this idea that training and being strong could not be my identity because it would be taken away from me very quickly. And uh, that was a very stark realization. It wasn't until my second knee injury where I was like, okay, like this is serious, had to have surgery. And then that's when I started reading more. That's when I started, you know, doing a lot more self-reflection and started me on that journey. Um, you know, Brian has his book gift of injury. And I definitely think my injuries have been a gift 
So, I mean, knock on wood that this is your first one. I was going to knock, but my dogs are listening. <laughs> They're like right outside the door. So I'm like, can't knock. Um, but yeah, injuries definitely can have a silver lining if you're willing to see it. So I'm glad yeah. that you saw that for sure. Well, it's, it's kind of like everything, you know, I, I'm one of those people who people are like, oh, you're really positive. I was like, I don't know that I'm really that positive. I'm just like, like I've had really shitty things in my life and it's like, okay so like is this the worst things ever happened no can i find like i've got to deal like people are like everyone's like oh you know, how you, you seem like you're dealing with this really well and i was like well i, I don't really have an option like when you yeah, look what's at what's the life, alternative like, yeah it's like it's broken anyways i'm not going to change that like let me deal with it or i mean what else yeah exactly what's the alternative i just don't deal with it like i don't understand i just be a prick the whole time my, my wife ends up hating <laughs> yeah, exactly. me like yeah anyway um so one of the reasons, so for people not familiar with you, I'm hoping you can get in a little bit to like your origin story and how you started coaching nutrition, because it is a unique origin story. I mean, from, from where you started as a hairdresser, uh, especially not having any hair. Did you have hair before? I did then. Oh yeah. I had like long hair, a little curly. It was great. Wow. How the mighty have fallen. Yeah, really. It's like youth. It's wasted. going going to it man like where how'd you start and what got you so yeah so i mean um so i I came in like kind of this weird backdoor way into fitness i was um i was working as a hairstylist in new york city i worked with like celebrities supermodels uh the kind of um in that world i i worked my way up where you know there was a point in my career where you could literally open pretty much any magazine on earth and my work was in there whether it be color cut style whatever um and I, cause I worked at a place where it was just like, we just had this like inflow flux of people. And it was this really unique, weird uh, place in Manhattan in, in the meatpacking district, but really high end salon. And so I got to the point where I was working fashion week. I, I was doing all these things. And um, I, I, the, the breaking point for me came, I, I kept achieving these goals and never felt satisfied with them because I wasn't like really passionate about hair. I mean, I got, I got a lot of accolades pretty quickly and I, I kind of sought out the best in the world that what they were doing and like just bugged them until they took me on as like a mentee. And um, it's kind of my, my theme in life is if I want to do something, I just find the best people I can that do it and then just harass them until they teach me how to be good at it. Pretty good. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it really is like, that's like, go to the source. Like if you want to be the best, can that person help you or one, one of those people help you? And, um, but I just never really got fulfillment from it. And I got, I started getting into training, you know, I, I had, I had battled alcohol and and drugs most of my life. Um, and I went to rehab one time and and started getting into lifting, came out now, granted I was in my thirties, I was about 145 pounds, like, and I just started lifting. Um, so I put on, you know, whatever 60 ish pounds, you know, in my thirties, which is not super easy. You love fitness. People love to be like, look, I have shitty genetics. Here's me when I'm 16. And then here's me when I'm 22. It's like, I actually say like, I have really good genetics. I started lifting in my thirties and put on 60 pounds of muscle. Like, yeah, it's sure. like, everyone wants to be like, Oh yeah. It's like, no, it's, you know, there's, it's, I mean, I don't have like world-class genetics, but they're better than average. So I actually, you know, credit that, but um, yeah, I started getting into lifting and my training partner at the time was a guy named Sean Heisen, who was the editor at muscle and fitness and men's fitness. And tr- our training sessions became like a master class in like just learning about the history of lifting learning about different uh, people, you know, like our programs and we were like, Oh, let's work, let's do a new 12 week program. And at the time it was, uh, you know, probably 2013 or so. And so it'd be like, all right, we're going to do a program for, you know, uh, 
I don't know, like Joe DeFranco will write us a program or Smitty from Diesel Crew or, um, you know, Steve Pulcinella, when we were doing Strongman, he wrote wow. us this program. And it's basically just work up to a max single and everything and, <laughs> and do a back offset. Like we were just beat right. to hell that whole, that whole uh, phase. But it was cool because I got to learn and I got to meet all these really great people. And then um, I started just contributing little snippets for articles and because i was in the publishing industry through hair and so i kind of understood it and then i started working as a fitness tech which basically i would go on shoots for the magazine and um be like the on like the trainer and tell people like okay put your foot here like make sure this looks like this because these models who were super jacked often had no idea how to perform exercises it was insane like you'd be like they'd say oh i can do a front squat and you'd be like, cool do a front squat and they'd have 135 pounds and they couldn't get to parallel. So then we had to like get creative about shooting it and be like, okay, how are we gonna do this? The guy would be crippled. Like he couldn't hold it. He'd be shaking. And he'd be like, this dude's so jacked and he has no idea how to do this. Like, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started training people a little bit on the side. Again, the gym I was at, I kind of like uh, shadowed there. And then I went, uh, there was this really great CrossFit gym called Virtuosity. Um, that was really into a uh, really heavy weightlifting gym and, and really into a lot of uh, really cool kind of gymnastics movement stuff. But then they also had a powerlifting program that was that was good for New York. And um, and I was doing strongman at a strongman gym. So I had this really good rounded kind of education coming in. And uh, yeah, so I started training people and uh, was out to dinner with my buddy Sean and, and Ben Bruno at the time. And he was like, yeah, just he's like, get a certification. I'll get you a job somewhere. I never ended up taking it up on them because I am kind of, I don't work well for others or really with others. So I kind of knew I was going to work for myself. And and so I just did. And and I just kind of built a book and then ended up opening a private studio in Brooklyn. Um, I started moving into working more on nutrition because it was a lever that I felt I could pull a little bit better. I also started to realize the more really great trainers I started meeting and interacting with that I was not actually that good of a trainer. Um, like there was these people that were so good and I was like, oh my God, like I'd rather just refer clients to them. And I started really enjoying the nutrition side of things. And, uh, yeah, so I went, ended up going fully online. God, I don't even know back in 20, 2018, maybe. Okay. And, um, and that was it. And then now I've really kind of moved away from like, I still coach some athletes and nutrition, like basic nutrition, but almost my entire focus of my, my private practice is that of really working on people who struggle with the emotional side of food. So, so less about, um, you know, here's some, some macros and like more about like, okay, you've been dieting your whole life. Like maybe let's take a break from dieting and figure out what are the things that are keeping you from really achieving your, your goals there. So the reason I really wanted you to share that was twofold. Number one being that coming from the you know hairstylist industry, it's a people business. You're always talking to people, you're communicating, you're you're flexing that muscle. Then you get into a new industry and you completely humble yourself and ask for help and ask for guidance from those who are where you want to be. So those two elements of taking your skill set and then humbling yourself and learning a new one, that to me screams of somebody who is trying to pursue mastery. When people, I, I often come across coaches that will establish themselves in a niche and then never come out of that niche or establish themselves with a philosophy and never 
never look towards other frames of reference or other thought processes that challenge their philosophy for fear of losing credibility or fear of, you know, you know, facing their inadequacy perhaps. Uh, and I think within your journey, there's literally the opposite of that, which I love. Yeah. I always think to myself, if I look back on what I was doing a couple years ago or three years ago and don't cringe at it, then I'm probably not growing in the right way. <laughs> for sure. For sure. I actually, I do that often because I save all of my clients training and I have a lot of, a lot of clients who have been training or doing their nutrition for years on end. And I'll look back and I'll be like, Whew. well, they got better. So I must've done something right. Yeah, but... Well, that's just it, right? Like you were doing something right. And it's not that there's, there's not, a, there's a wrong way. There's, there's an outcome. It's just like, you look back and you're like, oh, I said this. And like, I'm glad it went this way. Cause it really could have gone the other way. Like, I know what I meant, but I hadn't really fully formed that thought or I hadn't thought through in the downsides or I just hadn't experienced the downside. So I didn't recognize that they were there. But to your point, I think like so much of mastery is being like, can I look at 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 what I'm doing and find the faults in it in order to make it better? Right. And also like within that, never forgetting your strengths and always remembering yeah. to leverage those because your strength, and we'll get into the reason why I think that's so important, is your ability to communicate. And if someone was to follow you online and look at your content, very well spoken, very thought out, and in keeping with your goal of working with people who have emotional issues with eating, communication is your number one asset. Because right? words are what shape our reality. And a lot of people forget that. They 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 do not place enough importance on the words that come out of their mouth hole and how those words are interpreted by the person to whom they're communicating the two-way street of communication and when you're dealing with someone who has a ton of emotional baggage associated with something that you're trying to let's say improve upon maybe some words that you might consider to be innocuous could be incredibly triggering for them and so if you don't have a tremendous awareness over that, it's really, really challenging to make any meaningful progress. So I'm wondering if you could dive in a little bit to like, when you say emotional problems with eating or emotional issues with eating, uh, what are, what are some things that you, how would you describe that? Well, to me, it's, it really just comes down to when people are going to use food as a, a coping mechanism to deal with physical or emotional pain. Right. And so, okay. so there's, there's, there, you know, we see it manifest in things like binge eating, you know, or um, just, I, I refer to it just as emotional eating because sometimes it's binge like behaviors. It might not often be a true binge, you know, binge eating disorder. It could just be, you know, like episodes where they're overeating, they're finding comfort in food. They don't really understand why they're eating when they're not hungry. They don't maybe even understand their own hunger signaling at that point. Oh, yeah. And, um, so it's it's more that there there's a utility to it and so like what a big thing that i work with people on right off the bat is being like okay you're overeating is let's stop looking at it as as a pathology as a bad thing and look at it for where it's helped you and, and then we can start to actually work on it because it might have gotten you through a period that that was the only thing that got you through and it is a legitimate coping mechanism it just can't sure. be the only one you have or else you're going to end up in this guilt and shame spiral. So the first step thing is like taking away that guilt and shame from it and being like, hey, this has actually really worked for you or you wouldn't do it. 
but now let's just find some you're you're grown up you, you you have all of these skills that you've amassed over the years to deal with things let's start to utilize those as other mechanisms and again that's you know i think we were talked early on when we were talking about walking on like a podcast like a couple of years yeah, ago yeah. maybe and you were like oh like even my power lifters i'm like we're not doing anything until you get eight thousand steps and so like there's these behavioral interventions that we can take that don't necessarily have anything to do with being like oh how are you feeling about this but that can be like listen we're going to take this step and all of a sudden that's going to start regulating hunger better and then all of a sudden you're going to understand hunger signaling and then all of a sudden maybe now we can start to deal with the emotional things because you have a little bit of separation from that you sound more like a psychologist than a nutrition coach <laughs> Well, my main mentor slash coach is a clinical psychologist. Like she's, I've been working with her, Dr. Lisa Lewis for about pre-COVID. Uh, I went to a conference to, again, back into the thing that we said, the biggest thing I felt was missing in my practice was that I couldn't deal with people. I couldn't get people to manage their behaviors better um, by just throwing numbers at them for food and, and, and that. And so she was speaking at a conference. I knew that um, she understood the fitness industry because her husband's Tony Gentlecore. He's, you know, oh, wrapped wow, up okay, in the fitness industry. Um, and she's a clinical psychologist. So I went to this conference just to meet her, to ask her if I could, you know, if she could help me, if, she, if I could pay her for her time or whatever. And that's turned into a, you know, biweekly meeting for the past, whatever, four years. Um, and it does, and it's taught me kind of where my scope is, how I can extend my reach, how I can do things in the right way, um, how I can provide these these behavioral interventions in a way that's not therapy, but rather skills based. Um, and that's been really important in my growth and, and, and helped me to form my model and help me to change things. And and uh, so, yeah, so all of my 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 discussion, my thought process, I think of myself as the part of the reason I, I like to think of myself as a health professional. I went and got my health and wellness board certification because of that. But just because if I think of myself as a health professional, I will hold myself to a higher standard than if I just think of myself as like a, a, a coach, like a regular coach. And if I can hold myself to a higher ethical standard, I think it helps me to delineate where and when I'm helping people and, and not just to be like, OK, I just need to earn a couple more dollars. So I'm going to do this ad that like tells people they're going to lose like 10 pounds in 30 days or whatever it is that might be, you know, an easy sell, but would not match my values. So there's a lot of ways that I could actually go down there. The first, like the one that jumped out at the end was he mentioned, you know, the way you go about things needs to match your values. And that to me uh, is something that I speak about a lot. I actually gave my talk at Swiss last year was about creating impact within your practice. And it all stemmed upon adding value to the lives of others. And that's the number one like lighthouse of my business is can I add value to others? Because I truly believe that, you know, you mentioned, I'm not just going to do something to make money if it doesn't align with my values. But if you do something that aligns with your values and your values stem from helping others, money will come. We don't have to worry yeah. about that. It's, it's, it's a secondary thing. Like it's secondary to our business model, um, which I love. And then the next part is like, everything that you're talking about with regards to, the psychology around food and as a coping mechanism really speaks to me because, you know, I've had my own issues with food in the past. I think everyone has. Um, and I, I joke that if you ever want to dive deep into someone's psychology, just take away their food, make them hungry. 
And that's essentially what we're doing. So if you do, if you don't have a firm grasp of psychological concepts, it's really challenging to make impact as a nutrition coach. And I wanted to maybe dive into, if you're comfortable, like some concepts of CBT uh, or cognitive behavioral therapy, because I actually did a lecture on this for Coach's Corner a while back. I put a snippet on Instagram and I actually got a lot of flack about it because people were like, oh, you're not a therapist. You shouldn't be using CBT. And I was like, I'm not using CBT. But if we look at the way people view nutrition, all of the cognitive distortions described in CBT are present. All or nothing thinking, catastrophizing, like they're all there. And what we do in response to that being behavioral experiments, you know, calling it out. These are all principles of cognitive behavioral therapy. And, you know, what you're essentially saying is you frame the practice as a skills-based practice 100%. to implement strategies that overcome these distortions. Am I on the, on the right 100%. track? And that's how I stay in scope, right? That For me, that's how, so the branch of CBT that I really uh, dedicate most of my time to is called dialectical behavior therapy. Okay, uh, it was yeah. originally it was originally developed by Marshall Linehan to deal with young women who have borderline personality disorder. Now, the reason we came about uh, kind of diving more into this skill set, this branch, was because of the the symptomology of borderline personality disorder. Now, it looks very similar to that symptomology that I look with in my clients. Obviously, I'm not diagnosing them. Obviously, it doesn't really matter to me because if I, you know, it's like, um, you know, if it looks like a duck quacks like a duck, I don't really care if it's a duck because if I can utilize the same principles that can attack one thing, can I use those same principles for something else? Sure. So when we look at borderline personality disorder, we know that it, it kind of peaks with young women and young men can have it as well, but it's, it's mostly young women. Um, and and it, it really kind of peaks in, in late teen, early 20s. And then the symptoms just kind of fade. But there's always this underlying piece there. Um, eating disorders and disordered eating are obviously a big part of, of a borderline personality disorder. And so whether someone has it or not, if they're exhibiting things that look similar, DBT is a really great way to do it. And it's been adapted to use for disordered eating. It's been adapted to use for substance abuse because it is a set of skills. So the main things that we're really focused on in DBT are um, using, uh, you know, emotional regulation, using mindfulness, using, um, you know, different uh, uh, um, forms of understanding, accepting knowledge, or I mean, I'm sorry, uh, of describing and, and recognizing emotions and then how do we manage them? It utilizes something called distress tolerance, which is really like, how do I manage stress? You know, starting with acceptance all the way to using these like little things like putting your face in a bowl of cold ice water, right? Like that can be a distress tolerance, going for a run, exercise. You know, everyone wants to say like exercise is a therapy. It's like, well, that's funny because every therapeutic model uses exercise as a form of therapy. Like it's the most acute and fastest way to find a result. Like Freudian, uh, not that anyone actually does Freudian uh, talk psychology anymore, but if someone did, like he recommended five sessions per week and in about five years, you could really expect a change. Now I can give someone three gym sessions a week and probably see at least some kind of improvement in mood in about two weeks. So, so like, I'll, you know, I don't know which, which I'm going to lean on, but I don't know. I think that exercise <laughs> is a pretty good tool. I always said um, that exercise was a great antidepressant, but a terrible therapy. 
because it'll make yeah, it Yeah, and I good. think that's a great way to put it, right? Like it's going to be an inner it's going to be an acute intervention to help buy you some time to work on the things you need to work on. But I think anyone that tries to implement therapy without exercise is probably cutting themselves very short, right? That 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 exercise component is going to help move people along. Um and then last, we uh, there's a lot of interpersonal relationship stuff. So how do you deal with other people? And so I frame that relationship part really as like there's three pillars kind of that everything's built upon um, in my practice. And the bottom pillar really is about relationships, relationship with food, relationship with others, and relationship with yourself. And so we, when we're working on relationships, it doesn't necessarily mean working on like how your marriage is it can be like how are you talking to yourself to you to your point earlier is these like cognitive distortions these narratives these things that people tell themselves how can we start to manage those better and a lot of times it is like like what is that all or nothing thinking right well that all or nothing thinking likely is a part of them they developed same thing as eating right like eating as a coping mechanism that all or nothing thinking has probably helped them because like the women i work with are way more educated than me, way smarter than me. Most of them make way more money than me. Like, you know, I've got clients who are, you know, making seven figures a year and struggle with emotional eating. Like they're not lazy. They're not dumb. The PhDs. I mean, I work with clinical psychologists as clients. I work with MDs as clients. I work with lawyers, a lot of lawyers for some reason, um, people in the pharmaceutical industry, like they're, they're really good at everything except for this thing. It's so there. It's funny because you know I'm nodding my head, and one of the main prem, uh, one of the main descriptors of someone who has BPD, and, and I found it really interesting that you brought that up, is this lack of awareness over self, right? And that's it's a big, big pillar of of borderline personality disorder, and when we look at the parallel to be drawn with uh, disordered eating behaviors, it stems mainly from a lack of understanding or a lack of awareness over the factors involved in our decision to overeat um, or our indecision that leads to overeating. And one of the biggest things that I found to be valuable is simply asking every week in, in my check-ins with clients is like, did you deviate from the plan? And if so, how did you feel before, during, and after? And the, the answers to that question have given me so much insight into the relationship that these people have with food and how we can potentially make a positive impact simply by either validating their decision, pointing out that perhaps they could have made a better one had they been a little bit more aware and teaching them how to create awareness over their, their behaviors. And then again, after the fact, just like explaining to them that it's okay to feel the way that they're feeling because it's important to use that information for the future. And you mentioned, you know, lawyers and high performers. I personally find that in my practice, whether it be training or whether it be nutrition, people who are high performers have a genuine lack of awareness over their, over their personal, uh, personal stress states because they run at such a high clip all the time. It's like you're riding a bullet train and you're trying to paint a landscape of what you're seeing as you're passing by. It's impossible. So what skills can we teach them to slow that train down so that they can actually look at the landscape that, that they're passing by? Right? Yeah. I, I mean, like, 
just from personal experience, and I'm sure that you're speaking a little bit from personal experience as well. Yeah. <laughs> like I, when I moved from New York down here to South Carolina, I remember talking to other people that left New York and I was like, did, did you like just realize that you were fucking like just insane? And they're like, oh yeah, like I didn't, I thought my normal state was a normal state until I left. And then I was like, I was running at such a high like base level of stress that I thought was normal. And I came down here and it's like, I have a yard and I've got the beach and I was worried it was going to remove my edge. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to fall. But amazingly, when you give someone space to actually work on the things that they're passionate about, they become way more focused and way better at those things. And I think and we've had, you know, we were talking about this maybe a year ago when we talked last really kind of dug into a lot of the stuff you were doing with your business mentorship of like, you know, mm -hmm. to your point, these people run at such a high level. It's like one of the first things we do is like, like start stripping the fluff away. Like yeah. where are your priorities? What are the things that are actually important? Can we get it's it's a lot of times it's not about adding things for these people. It's like, what can we take away? Because they're jammed. And, and it's like if I add stuff to their plate, like I'm just going to put them in a worse state to your point. It's like I need to remove some of that stress. And I think in terms of like what kind of skills can we work on? Well, the first thing is that kind of what can I eliminate from my day that is not making my day better? It's I, I love and It's so funny because this is a, a, a practice in DBT um, that my parent, like everyone's parents probably have to do. It's like the pros and cons list. It's so <laughs> yes. dumb, but it's like, it's so dumb. But then you put it down and you're like, that's that, that tells you a lot. It tells you a whole lot. The hardest part about a pros and cons list is no matter what, you always have an emotional attachment to either. And that yeah. that's like, it comes up so much because I, I have a very, I have developed a very high level of self-awareness. So in all of my interactions, I kind of, and this is through a ton of therapy, of course, I've developed this ability to kind of look at my life from this like, top level and like observe myself in situations. And there are so many situations that I look at and I'm like, you know, I just need to slow down a little bit. I need to figure out what's really going on, why I'm making these decisions, because in a lot of times the cons will outweigh the pros and I'll still make that decision towards the pros. And we do it all the time. Or it, I, I see it personally in my clients and in myself comes to attachment. Oh yeah. Right. And an attachment to food or an attachment to a person or an attachment to a toxic job. Right. Because a lot of our identity may be attached, attached to that as well. Right. It's a very layered discussion, but you can't get down to those layers without teaching the ability to observe. Right. Yeah. And, and I like that you said, cause I, I do the same thing. I, I do that same hand movement, even when I'm talking about it, I'm like, you gotta kind of, cause you, you, you almost, you almost need to like for a moment dissociate. And, and, and that's what, that's what coaching really is though. Right. Is that yes. it's, it gives, it gives someone the opportunity. Someone else is looking down from that 50 foot view and says, the thing and, and like that's the best i'm talking to clients and i'm like so you know how can we kind of manage this this relationship or whatever and they're like sitting here going well, well when i talk to my team and it's like they basically run through everything i'm about to run through and i'm like yeah you know this stuff and they're like yeah i know it like it's just i don't see it myself and it's like of course so that's why i joke when i'm working with psychologists is like 
I'm about to throw this DBT at this person who knows way more about human beings. <laughs> These are people who are actual yeah. experts. They have PhDs in this stuff. And I'm like, but I'll go for it, right? And they appreciate it because they're like, hey, these are just skills. Like, you know, and, and to the point of like the people were kind of like coming at you like, oh, you're not a therapist. Um, yeah, but like either as a rabbi or a priest or or okay. just a mentor, like we don't have to help someone through problems. We don't necessarily, you know, if someone has a deep psychological like issue, oh, yes, like, there absolutely is things that need to be moved out, out to the proper, proper, uh, channels 100 like if your friend comes to you and asks for advice on a relationship like being informed about behavior stuff i mean that's the other thing is like i listen to a lot of uh talks and podcasts from psychologists like one of my favorites is like listening to um you know paul bloom who's a developmental psychologist mm -hmm. someone asked him about uh how that's aided in raising his children he's like <laughs> not at all he's like it doesn't matter he's like one of the other things you learned about developmental psychology is like I know all this stuff and we know how like somewhat how people's behavior operates, but at the end of the day, none of it actually matters in like dealing, like as long as you don't screw your kid up or like, you know, really like abuse them, like for the most part, they're going to kind of form and you have way less input into it than you really think you do as a parent. Like every parent thinks like, Oh, I'm going to, it's like, there's not that much according to developmental psychology. So like to hear someone who's an expert, like an expert of all experts talking about something and being like, yeah, but it doesn't really help. It's more an observation. It helps me to understand what my goal is. It's really to observe. And to your point, if I can get that person, my, uh, there's a, 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 a model called uh, internal family systems mm -hmm. and what their website was called selfleadership.com. I think they changed it, but that one stuck with me because I love that. It's like my goal for clients is I want to teach them to be the CEO of them, yes. right? Like right now there's this board of directors. And if I can teach them to manage their own company, the way they manage their business interests, like that's the goal. That's the goal is get them to be their, their own leader. Man. It's almost like we rehearsed this beforehand because that was the perfect <laughs> segue. Um, because, you know, you mentioned the the developmental psychology being like, yeah, I know all this stuff, but it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the intersection between science and the individual. Because, I mean, for as long as we will have social media, there will be the keyboard warriors talking about evidence-based this and science that. And it, while I will never say that having an education and a well-rounded understanding of the research around nutrition is a detriment to you, when you're dealing with a person, as you mentioned, just throwing numbers at them will not work. And if it yeah. does work, it won't work forever. <laughs> right. And, and, and I always joke because I have one client. I mean, I've worked with probably 2,000 people over the years. And um, I have one guy who I still, I've worked with for years and like he never really knew anything about nutrition. I threw him some numbers. He lost 80 pounds in a year. He's maintained it. The guy's like 160 pounds, eats about 3,500 calories a day. Every two weeks, he has one day where he eats like 10,000 calories and he goes back to, and he may, he, has, he maintains between 162 pounds and 163 pounds every single day. We haven't changed anything in five years. There's absolutely no reason for him to work with me whatsoever. He just likes to check in. That's one person, right? Like that yeah. is the one guy. And I don't even like, he's just this crazy outlier. Uh, nobody else is like that. Like it's wild, but like there is the guy, right? There's that one and people will hold that up to be like, Oh, but see, and it's like, well, no, that's not really good evidence. So, you know, I think one of the things is that, that understanding how to read research, I think is way more important than, than anything pertaining to 
it because you yep. just need to be able to sift through the bullshit and like understand like is this a good study is this not a good study is this a one-off cohort with like 12 people um you know is this a meta-analysis like just i think understanding how to read research and that was really big in my development was like um and so i dove down the research rabbit hole of like oh this is this thing um i just don't love it like i have friends who love reading research i have friends who love interpreting data and i have friends who like doing stats like that's just not my passion luckily i have friends who are really good at it so i can see a study i can read it and i can be like i think this is good hey what do you think about this right and so i have those i always have experts in my corner that do things way better than me so i can turn to them right. um but my passion is really you know it, it, it is on the more you know for lack of a better time term clinical side is on working with people i enjoy that that's what i love uh, i will read about modalities to improve my skill set right like the reason i read about dbt yep. or the reason i do stuff with ifs is to make me better as a practitioner with my clients it's not because i want to be the best at research right like the kenny powers thing is like no i play a real sport i'm not trying to be the best at exercising right like so it's like this is what i do. i love coaching so many people that are into in coaching are just trying to do the next thing to get them away from coaching that's not my desire i want to be coaching people when i'm 85 years old like i want to have a beard and just be like sitting and like have like five clients and living in i don't know the mediterranean or wherever or, or have a little pizza food truck or something and then have like five because i love i love the interaction i do that's what i enjoy the same. um yeah yeah and so i think when and i think it can get easy to get sucked down the rabbit hole and as as you said social media plays such a big role in that because people can say xyz this says this and you're like okay it, it does say that right like we know that the only thing important for weight loss is a calorie deficit but it is more complex than that how do you um, get there right how do you maintain that how like, do you get there how do you how do you determine when it gets hard or you or or how do you even know that what you think you want is what you actually want that's a very deep question um <laughs> I'm fighting it really hard to take it seriously because it's so deep. Like, how do you know what you want is actually what you want? Like, yeah, how, well, and, and that's what we work with because everybody. Here's the thing: is right with social media now, everything you see is the outliers. You don't yeah. see the average. So everyone thinks that that this, you know, that abs are attainable. And you know, I was at at um coach uh, coach catalyst. They had a a coaches summit this a couple weeks ago that I was down and it was really great. Lots of great presenters, lots of great speakers. Like the 10th person who I've, who's like, yeah, I went to this thing. I'm like, fuck, I should have gone. It was really good. I mean, like from a nutrition standpoint, like Justin Harris spoke and I've been following him forever. And like, um, you know, I was always like, man, this, this giant meathead seems like he's so smart. Well, the cool thing was he talked and he said like, oh yeah, I've got a master's degree in psych in, in physics. And I was like, oh, so you really are just smarter than everyone. Okay. That makes me feel way better actually. <laughs> like, but like this, like, this is a guy who coaches the best bodybuilders you know in the world on their nutrition and he's up here talking about like weighing yourself he's like i don't know it's just kind of a stupid metric and he goes into like the science of the cell and like then he'll go in and use all that knowledge to explain why weight as your only measurement is really not it's it's just so it's so variable it just doesn't make sense um and you know i love the thing i love about bodybuilding is 
the again the evidence-based people who really have almost no skin in the game like i shouldn't say all of them right like my friend ben house like this dude like or like eric helms like some of these guys are like these natural you know bodybuilders that really put in the work um mm -hmm. and then on the enhanced side you know was, i got to, when i was down at the coach's castle with um with your your coach and your um danny. mentee danny who's just yeah. an absolute like just unit i mean just savage, savage. Like, yeah but like talking with her about the mindset stuff right like how do you manage that kind of deficit for that long and again it comes down to that values thing but someone's going to look and well, that's what I was going to say is the thing that kept coming up is like that something like 2% of Americans have abs and like 8% of Americans are millionaires or something like that. It's like, there's far more million. It's easier to make a million dollars than it is to have abs yet. How many people think that abs are the most attainable thing for them versus telling them, Hey, can you make a million dollars? It's interesting that you frame it like that. Cause I have, I've always looked at, okay, so this might be a little bit of a tangent, but it's good. I like tangents. I firmly believe that everyone can have abs. Can. Can. Okay. Problem being the trade-offs inherent in getting those abs are going to be much more significant for the vast majority of the population. Case in point, I never had abs until I was third, like good, like not flexing abs until I was 32. That's 14 years of never missing a meal, never missing a training session, Damn. enhancement, and then a very significant period of dieting. I ended up at the end of that diet, I was eating like 1600 calories a day and still training every single day, like training five days a week, cardio every day but I did it and I had abs and that to me proved it's like, I, if I can do it after being a fat kid, my whole life, it's possible. So anyone who says that it's not possible for every person to have abs, that to me, that's disingenuous, but the more honest, it, the more honest answer is, Everyone could have abs. Not everyone is willing to make the trade-offs required to get them, right? Because you may be that person who has a sluggish metabolism, who has very poor hunger cues, who was brought up in a home where processed foods were the norm, and you've developed this, you know, propensity for overindulgence. That's going to be a lot to overcome if you actually want to get abs, and the process of getting abs may be more unhealthy than the process for getting abs for somebody else. So are you willing to make that trade-off of quality of life, of health, of, you know, time, energy away from the other things that you really enjoy just for abs? For 99% of people or sorry, 98% of people, it's no. Yeah. And like, think about what making a million dollars is like you can probably just put away part of your paycheck if you work at a certain job and that'll probably happen over the course of you know with compounding interest sure. over the course of 50 years right so there's less pain involved in that that mm -hmm. process and, and i mean i'll simplify the whole thing further it's like people think to your point like of like the trade-offs like people think they want abs but it's like do you 
I mean, first of all, why, right? Like, because yeah. I've done it. Like, I mean, you know, I've gotten super. It was something came up in my Facebook memories from six years ago, and I did a pretty, I did a real strong cut for a, a, a photo shoot, and I was like, damn, I was shredded. Like, I was like, I forgot that I got that lean. I have like, I was gonna turn forty five in May, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna do uh, another cut and like just like get kind of ripped to do some pictures for Instagram. And like two days later, I looked at my wife because I told her I was like, hey, we're gonna kind of cut down if you cool. Like, da, da, da. and I looked, I was like. Like what? she's like, I thought it was kind of weird you were saying that, but I didn't want to say anything. I was like, go ahead, go for it. I was like, it's totally antithetical to like what I do. It's not going to help my business. It was literally just to do something to like impress people on the internet that I don't know. And I was like, <laughs> and it's gonna, it's not going to improve my athletic. Like my my athletic goals being like things in jujitsu right now. It's like, and training. It's it's not going to be helpful for that. Like, so I'm like, you know, if, what was I doing it for? And like the weird thing too is then getting injured and having hunger signaling just like drop like i'm pretty in tune with hunger like i just eat whatever i want and i'll man i'll maintain my weight and i probably maintain around like i don't know like 15 percent body fat right like so mm-hmm. i'm not like ripped but i'm not like chubby or anything so i'm fine right. um and so it's like one of those things like what like do i really want to stop eating pizza on friday nights like eh, i don't know if i do if i do like cool like i'll just not you know i'll probably can change that one i probably change like two things in my life and get abs in like eight weeks like it's it's not that far off but yeah it's like this weird thing of people like oh i think i want this it's like okay well what do you think is going to happen because i think that's the other thing is like you i think the people think there's gonna be this mad it's like what do you know you're gonna get a couple weird creepy dms from dudes that's about it (laughs) i had a couple had a couple yeah it's not going to be like it's not going to be this idea that like women are going to fawn over you everywhere you go like no they don't care at all no and i mean that that discussion is is important to have because you know when we talk about the psychology of the individual and what's really going to unlock their ability to make those informed choices right to say you know maybe i don't want abs but I want to feel better day to day, right? I want, and I, and I view abs as a, as a sign of weight loss. So I'm attaching the, uh, the visible abs to this idea that I'm going to feel better, move better, you know, have better self-esteem maybe, but I bet the process of actually successfully executing on a diet and adhering to some sort of framework will improve your self-efficacy, which will then improve your self-worth, which will then improve your feelings of competence in your day-to-day. You'll The weight loss itself will have you moving better, feeling better, sleeping better, fucking better. Like everything will improve. Mm-hmm. So is it the abs or is it really just the process towards which you believe that you'll achieve them? Who knows? What if you don't get there? I went through this exact conversation with a client um, about a month ago, he signed on with me a year ago. He's like, I want to be 200 pounds by my birthday. Started at, at 285 pounds. So he wanted to lose 85 pounds. We got him down to 201.7 on his birthday. And I said, are you happy? And he's like, well, I still look fat. And I'm like, why do you think that is? He's like, well, I need more muscle. Yeah, because you're six foot one and 200 pounds. You know, and he's like, I really think this is a long term thing, isn't it? <laughs> and I said, I said, I said, Dan, you just lost 84 pounds in a year. 
do you have any idea how crazy that is? He goes, oh yeah, I guess it is. I'm like, what the fuck? And he's that one guy. He's that one guy. I just gave him numbers. He did the numbers and I just changed the numbers gradually over time. And, you know, I look, I look at a a situation like that. It's like, I kind of rolled with it because I I knew his personality. I'd worked with him once before, but if that was anyone else and they came to me and said, Hey, I want to lose 85 pounds in a a year, that would have been a really deep conversation to have with that client. Cause there's a lot of trade-offs inherent in losing 85 pounds in 52 weeks. Yeah. So uh, well, and, and the thing is though, is when you work with those people, it's like, it's fascinating to see them do, and then to see them almost uh, minimize what they're doing. Like they yeah. can't wrap their head around how significant and how rare it is. I mean, it's, you know, I've got a client, she's like, you know, she lives, we work really on, uh, on a lot of this emotional stuff and she's, she's a master's power lifter. And so she's got, you know, to be, she wants to be in a weight class and it's great. So we can kind of, it, it kind of, but she's like, you know, I just don't trust myself that I'm going to gain weight because, you know, I used to be, she had lost a hundred pounds and I'm like, I said, you, you actually are really good at maintaining your weight. She's like, no, I'm not. She's like, I used to be like, I was like, you've maintained a hundred pound weight last for three years. That's that's amazing. Like that's that's better than ninety five percent. All the averages. Like you've beaten everything. So yeah, like maybe that like losing more weight has been difficult. And you know now she's down. I mean she's I think she's lost in total like another like forty pounds or something. But it's like you've maintained that you know for so long. You're actually really good at it. And like even before that, like how long did you weigh whatever when you were heaviest? She's like, oh, for like 10 years. Like, but you never got heavier. No. Like, yes, you made. And a lot of it is, again, it's like taking the same thing and looking at it from a different angle. And I was like, look at how well you maintain. Even when you were overweight, you didn't gain weight, right? You stayed that weight for 10 years. And then when you decided to lose it, you lost that weight. And then you maintained that for another three. And then like these are the victories um, but we really tend to downplay as humans. We tend to downplay a lot of those things and upplay the negative. Like, oh, but I still have. And that's why when I talk about acceptance, people poo-poo acceptance. Like, oh, accept. Like, no, acceptance is way harder than denial because yeah, yeah. you have to accept where you are, even if it's not where you want to be. And that's the starting point. I'm living it, man. All I want to do is fucking squat over 800 pounds again. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. And it's like, okay, what are you going to do? I'm going to make my training fun again. I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to change my goals. I'm going to, because again, like I've changed my identity. My identity is no longer Paulo need the power lifter. And it kind of, I, I joke that it, you know, that transition from Paulo need the power lifter to Paulo need the coach kind of, happened without my permission, but, uh, you know, here I am and we, we can kind of live our life and pass on these lessons to other people. And when we're going through it ourselves, or we have clients that are going through it and we can pass on that information, we, you know, we glanced over the science bit because honest, honest to God, and this is going to sound like a complete, mock to my business model for coaches corner university but (laughs) you need a really rudimentary knowledge of nutrition to actually help people with nutrition it's very true 
right? You still want to have more, right? You always, you always want to have a larger depth of knowledge than you need, but you probably don't need a whole lot. And to be honest, I work with a population who's been dieting since they're 13 or 14 years old. They know everything and, and they probably carry a lot of BS around. They created a lot of food rules in that process. And a lot of it is mm-hmm. dispelling some of those, but they know like, like again, and you know, macros are so, like such an easy thing to give out. Like, and there's plenty of apps that can do that just fine. Right. Like as a coach, that's not a skill set really. And it's actually kind of a higher level skill for a lot. It's weird because in nutrition, Again, I, I always come back to bodybuilding coaches because I'm, I'm, I just, I'm fascinated. I, I'm not a bodybuilder. I'll never compete. I don't ever have a desire to, but it's one of my favorite pursuits to pay attention to because like these, like people are like, oh, I need all these tools in order to lose weight. I'm like, okay, I want you to go watch Pumping Iron and I want to, I want you to tell me how many times someone pulls out my fitness pal in that movie, right? Like these, what they did is they ate the same thing every single day over and over again. And then, Hey, I got to lose weight. I'm going to take something out. And so we've, I've almost come around to this point of maybe not a meal plan, but most people we work on, we create a meal template. We create repeatability. We create consistency. If, if, if nutrition, if weight loss is a goal, rather than saying you can have whatever you want, as long as you hit these numbers, it's like, all right, so, Maybe thermic effective food isn't a huge thing, but if you're going to tell me that tonight I had, you know, 400 calories from Twinkies, and then the other night I had 400 calories from chicken breast and broccoli, and that that's the same thing, oh, I, I you know, you're gonna lose me, yeah, yeah, like it's just like, and I'm, I don't want to go down that a calorie is not a calorie because yes, a calorie is a calorie, it's a thermic measure of food, that's all it is, but there is a difference in and if someone's always eating different stuff like there's just so many variables like let's let's if you are evidence-based if you really are you're trying after the scientific method right we want to create a model that is devoid of variables if at all possible so anything that changes throws off our calculations so if i can have someone's gonna be like i'm gonna eat the same breakfast and lunch every day and then my dinner is going to kind of fit within this like you know 600 calorie or five to 800 calorie range and it's going to be composed of one of these two or three protein sources one of these you know vegetables or carbs or whatever it is a piece of fruit and then we can just modify that that to me is probably going to be more beneficial and again it's super sustainable evidence yeah oh for sure for sure um so we're coming up on an hour and i do want to be mindful of your time because i did have a lot more i wanted to talk about but I thought we, uh, man, we just kind of went off on that and I loved it. Um, maybe we'll finish on like, I have here written down common diet fads, social media, and their effect on the landscape of nutrition coaching. And the reason I wrote that and is I'm finding that clients are coming to us with these very firmly held beliefs of what healthy nutrition truly is. And combining that with now this pharmaceutical industry that's dove into weight loss with Ozempic and Wagovi, um, I mean, all the misconceptions around those drugs in the, in and of themselves. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit on what you're seeing in terms of how this new landscape has affected your practice. Um, 
Well, you know, it's just, to start, I, I just recently co-authored a study that is hopefully getting published soon. I haven't seen yet. It's a major review. Um, but we actually, one of the things we looked at was weight gain in college students during COVID and isolation. And so um, it really forced me to look into how isolation, how social relationships contributed to weight gain. It was very different across the world. We saw because differences in food availability in the United States in general, food availability was still high. Mm -hmm. And we saw a lot of the uh, negative emotions that came with social isolation actually came with a lot of weight gain, which is not to be surprised, right? Like negative emotion and weight gain is often co uh, coexist. Um, now the, the rise in disordered eating in a lot of ways came, um, via social media, uh, in, and to your point, the, the fads, right? Like whether that be, um, you know, strange dietary choices, uh, in terms of, uh, just calorie restriction. Now I've been around for a while. So I remember the HCG diet, which was really just yeah. using HCG and 500 calories to make people lose weight. Mm -hmm. um, and so now, you know, you, you brought up the Ozempic and the Wagovi. Now, one of the things that I see, this is a very nuanced topic. And of course, nothing online gets We could probably do a full podcast on those two drugs. So. Yeah. But one of the interesting things that I found amongst my clients is that, that those who've battled weight their entire lives, the Ozempic or the, the Wagovi, uh, the semaglutides are really great for them in allowing them to do some of the emotional work because mm -hmm. it takes them and gives them space, like, like mindfulness, because they're not obsessed over food. And they now think I can go have a half of a burger and not want the whole thing. And that's yeah. never been something that they've been able to do now. Like this is where the nuance comes in because I've actually even like I, I tested out semaglutide for two weeks just to see what it did. Yeah. Um, it well, it made me pretty nauseous. I have pretty good hunger signaling generally. Um, I had really trouble eating. And now the problem comes in the things that you still want to eat when you start feeling kind of nauseous. And I think the nausea supposedly goes away after a while, but when you start feeling a little nauseous and your hunger signaling drops, you tend towards things that are mostly carbs and fats. Highly palatable and away from protein, right? And mm -hmm. so we see protein drop. People maybe are not exercising. So if they're not utilizing lifestyle interventions, we're going to start falling into the same cyclical dieting issues of losing muscle in the process. So I think these drugs can be really great alongside lifestyle intervention. And I think maybe long-term we'll see where that, that leads because I don't think there's a whole lot of research on what having a solid exercise, um, behavioral intervention I did, alongside these will do long-term. I did actually see uh, a study oh, good. A, couple, a couple weeks ago uh, compared um, the use of those drugs with and without a behavioral intervention and it mostly focused on recidivism that's what i'm interested in yeah and with the lifestyle intervention all the markers were improved and it's exactly what you spoke to right so i have a couple of clients who are using it and the number one thing we focus on is food quality right focusing on single ingredient whole foods high protein foods uh fruits and vegetables and i have them you know measuring their fruits and vegetables making sure they're hitting a benchmark and the number one thing I worry about is, are you training hard enough to retain your muscle tissue? And are you eating enough protein to make sure that we're having a positive nitrogen balance? Because then, you know, if we're looking at 
long-term maintenance of weight loss, we need to look at maintenance of BMR. And that's going to come from how much muscle mass we can maintain on this diet. And if one of the side effects of these GLP-1 agonists is going to be muscle loss, well, we got to do everything in our power to prevent that. And I do think the muscle loss is because people are just not eating enough protein. I think they're eating yeah, I, I would agree. very, very little agree. protein on these diets because I see what people come to me who don't have any prior understanding of the macronutrients and like having someone come to me and eat 60, 70 grams of protein at over 200 pounds body weight is not uncommon. No, nope. not uncommon. These are people that are getting 2,500 steps a day, right? Like they're just not moving. They're not eating their, their hunger is not that high at least not high in their hunger signals off, but they, they aren't eating the proper things. And so they tend towards those hyper palatable foods. And, and what you said, it's like, there's this battle of like, you know, using the right words or whatever. And like, what is healthy foods? And, you know, with the, if it fits your macros things, I think we swung way too far. There is, and you know, it, it can sound classist or like you know and not everyone has access to whole foods i understand that but if you have access to paying for coaching you have access to whole foods sure. and that is going to be it, and I, I don't want to say it's the best type, but like bottom line is it's just going to be higher part like my 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 family comes to my house and everyone's always bitches because like you don't have any food i was like i got tons of food i got like four pounds of ground beef cooked i got like two pounds of chicken breast there's rice there's potatoes there's they're like yeah we don't have any snacks and i was like yeah that's how i live my life though like i don't if i want some chips i'm gonna go buy a single serving of chips because that just doesn't fit in with my values and how we and and unfortunately if people eat whole foods and 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 mostly first of all from a gut health perspective we know that that really like eating a diet lower in fat, moderate carbs with lots of fruits and vegetables, a lot of colors, moderate, you know, to higher protein is going to improve your, your, your gut bacteria. We know that emotionally that's going to be probably pretty beneficial just from what we've seen, like the difference in like sure. uh, Mediterranean diet versus other diets, maybe uh, getting enough, you know, healthy fats in, and that comes from whole foods. And it, it's just, that's just the reality. And, and I think to your point is like, if we can get people eating like that, they're not going to have as many struggles long-term, you know, regular movement, regular exercise, having enough muscle mass. Do we, they need to carry around muscle? Like, you know, what we want? Of course not. You know, are they going to be beneficial? If everyone it was to, you know, gain 10 pounds of muscle from training, they'd probably be in a world of difference, right? Just that like 10 to 15 pounds, which is, it's, it's a lot for us, but for someone who's just kind of getting into training, it's not really that much. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think, I think there's, and it, with everything, it's like, there's the pros and the cons. And unfortunately, because of social media, because of selling anything, building a brand is mm -hmm. all about creating divisiveness and creating conflict and creating a dichotomous thinking. You can't have those conversations. And that's where I struggle is because I, everything I want to do and everything I believe in is about context and about the individual, um, on a societal level. Do I think these things can help? Yes. But we still need to look at what are the drawbacks and let's be honest about those, not shy away from them because we're worried it's going to, you know, upset the tribe. It's like, no, these things can be beneficial and harmful at the same time, depending on the person it's for and how they apply it. Yeah. Context is everything. And I love the way 
you know, you, you mentioned that. And I think our value as nutrition coaches is we can tease out the context for people who might otherwise be blind to it uh, or unaware and, you know, lead them in a direction and provide them a little bit more freedom around their choices. Uh, I think, you know, when people have these preconceived notions from social media, from uh, the news or whatever it might be, or from advertising, I feel like initially a lot of my job is unlearning those things in people and uh, showing them that they can have a lot more freedom of choice, showing them that, you know, if they master a few, a few set skills, that a lot of opportunity opens for them with regards to their nutrition and their management of their weight. Well, and I think, and, and to come back and kind of throw you a, a, a bone is when we talked about, you know, last year was you talk so much about this time management piece. It's always something I've worked with, but like I've seen clients who, you know, you talk about some simple skills that we can just help them to master a little bit of time management, whether it be through time blocking or setting up a schedule, like that becomes a keystone habit that, that sure. flows into so much else. And I think that that's so often underlooked and undervalued, uh, but something like that can have this exponential change on someone to your point of like, just like three skills maybe can have such a huge impact. And that's the big thing is like, it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be crazy. It'd be like something as simple as like, how are you using your time? Like, okay, because your biggest issue is you don't have time. Well, how are you utilizing? Is there somewhere we can buy back some time? Boom. Remember, All of a sudden, their life changes. I remember the funniest example I had was, it was just an example I did with myself. I was like, I'm going to see how my screen time changes when I don't bring my phone to the bathroom. <laughs> I remember you saying that. I saved myself almost an hour a day. Yeah. And I'm sure there were other factors in my day that led me to use my phone less. But I remember after one week of not using my phone in, like in the bathroom, I was like down an hour of phone use a day. I was like, no wonder I was so productive. Well, and and it's probably it probably wasn't that moment, but that fact that you were like, I can suspend my squirrel brain that we're all developing yeah. for like this time. Then I can also suspend it when I'm on, you know, when I'm watching a, a TV show, or I'm listening to a podcast. I don't have to check. Like I, don't, I can be mindful. I can be present in yeah. these other moments just by X. And, and, and it's, I love that book, do hard things. Cause it's like, like just choose one thing that's uncomfortable a day to do. Mm -hmm. And I bet you everything else feels a little bit better. Yeah, man. I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but I know. Um, <laughs> I have, I have a couple of questions. Yeah. Very, very important. Do you crack your egg on a flat surface or on the corner? Yes. Of no, because uh, I watched chefs. I, I grew up working in restaurants and uh, they never crack on the, uh, on the frying pan. One album that you can listen to, no skips. Uh, well, there's a lot, but I would say I'm gonna go with a double album, Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street. Oh, okay. Double album. Five people, dead or alive, you plus five at a dinner table. Who is it? Um, Sam Harris, Robert Sapolsky, Lisa Feldman Barrett. Um, man, there's some dead people. Two more. Winston Churchill. Um, Winston, he right? trade. And then, um, God, I don't know. Uh, you got to throw a monkey wrench in there. Yeah, like what's a, a weird one? Um, Jim Morrison. How about that? That's a monkey wrench. <laughs> I love it, man. Um, the last question, and we'll finish on this, is if you could see anyone on this podcast, who would it be? With the caveat that you have to get me to, you have to help me get them on. 
Okay. Um, that would be really good. Let's see if we can get uh, get Ben House on here. Ben House. I've never spoken to Ben. Yeah, I think you. I think you guys would get along. I mean, he's you know, he's actually. I don't. He's 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 left the internet because now he's uh, the nutrition coach for the Memphis Grizzlies. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, but but he's you know he's he's covered. You know, we're talking about nutrition guys. Like he's everything from the research to the clinical to, um, yeah, I think he'd be a good one. So I'll Very reach cool. out to him. Dude, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. We went a little bit over. I think it was my longest podcast, but uh, I mean, like I said, I, I feel like I, <laughs> I talk, talk a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, everyone, like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell. Thank you for joining us. This podcast brought to you by Master Athletic Performance, www.masterathletic.com, and, and Coach's Corner U, www.coachescorneru.com. Jeb, where can people find you? Uh, on the Instagram, uh, Jeb Stewart Johnston. I'm on TikTok. I'm jo- Jeb Johnston, I'm doing a TikTok experiment where I do 90 videos in 90 days to see if I don't completely hate it afterwards. Okay. Um, and yeah, and my, my website's www.foodonthemind.com. Awesome. I'll have those in the show notes. Thank you guys. Have a great day.